Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to another Invested Investor. This week we're with Dominic Hill. Dominic has a background in jewellery that you'll hear more about in the podcast. Currently is CEO of Atelier Tech. Um, So I'll just leave it over to him. Let's hear your background, please, Dominic. Sure. Firstly, thanks very much for having me on the Invested Investor. I think it's a great idea. My background is almost exclusively in the jewellery industry, professionally speaking. I came into the industry in 1998 at the age of 18 by chance and I worked my way up through a large privately owned wholesale company starting in actually wiring up the desks and then packing jewelry and then doing some grunt administration at the time we had telex machines and fax machines and lots of sort of data transcribing and then I got an opportunity on sales and then did well and eventually Cut a long story short, I made commercial director by the age of 27 and had a pretty successful period of four, three or four years there, despite very challenging market conditions in 2008 to 2012, is that period. And the opportunity that really opened the door for me to move into software was that the vacuum that opened above me in the company when the managing director left was because they'd lost their biggest client overnight. And this was a 60 million pound client in a 90 million pound business. So it was a... Wow. Yeah, it was terminal pretty much. And then it's 2008 as well, right? So it's like the worst possible time. And um, my remit coming in was you need to expand the number of customers we're working with and we need you to fire half of the company. And I knew the company. I've been in the company for many, many years. So I knew what I was dealing with, right? I had advantages from that side of things. But what became clear to me was that the only way that we could do this was by centralizing resource. I had a great merchandiser on one account. I had a great product developer in another area of the business, but these were all little sort of umbrellas underneath a large umbrella and everybody was running on Excel and you know, you'd know, you have one great Excel spreadsheet built by somebody on one side of the business that was particular to serving Argos. And then you had another one on the other side of the building that was specific to serving QVC or what have you. And that there was no centralization of any of this. And that was holding us back. I could see that we had bandwidth restrictions. And so the only solution in terms of removing those was software. And so I blindly jumped into software um, as a solution to our problem internally. And that effectively was the entry point for me into technology, into disruption, and ultimately brought me to where I am today. So did you create the software in-house then, or was it when you transitioned into your entrepreneur? No, no, we built it in-house, yeah. So I was fortunate that I had a smart IT guy, really overqualified for his job. And he was kind of intellectually unchallenged in that role that he was performing. And he was quite up for the project when I said to him, hey, I want to build our own piece of software. How do we do this? 
cheap and I don't, you know, we, we didn't have any real understanding of how you should build software, right? And this is actually typical across certainly the jewelry industry. I can't really speak to other industries, but this is typical that you get these home build softwares, right? That's trying to solve problems and they just launch into building these software systems. And typically at that point of time, you know, we're talking about legacy local software. These are C-sharp .NET applications for the most part. They've been designed by an engineer. There's no such thing as UI or UX. <laughs> You're literally just talking about a different era of software, really. And we were part of that. And we used an early outsourced platform, which today is called Upwork. At the time, it was called Odesk. And we connected with a couple of engineers in Romania. And in the end, a couple of years later, we'd actually brought them over and made them full-time staff. And it took us about three or four years to complete this project. But ultimately, we did it on a shoestring budget compared to an external consultancy that had been paid nearly about 100,000, I think, when we started the project. And they hadn't even got to the point of breaking ground. But that's a typical problem, right? Which was jewelry companies do not attract top tech talent. If you're a smart engineer, you don't want to go and work for H. Samuel, right? <laughs> you want to go work for Google or someone much more interesting. And yet they harbor all of the domain expertise and understanding of a very complex industry. And that's not just me saying it's complex. I mean, I can actually prove at a database level that jewelry has sort of extra layers of variance that other industries don't. I have to do that quite frequently, actually, provide examples to investors of what do I mean by that? Who are the company, et cetera, et cetera. And so these companies are the natural harbor of that market intelligence, that business intelligence. And so they're the only people who are really positioned to execute a solution, but they don't know what they're doing with software. We didn't know what we were doing with software. And so they build suboptimal products. And these products are almost always exclusive to the company because it's been built to solve a pressing need or a problem or bandwidth restriction like it was for me. And then extrapolate that out across an industry and suddenly you've got everybody building software to solve efficiency problems internally. And then the next thing that immediately came into my mind as I finished sort of the first three years of it was, wow, why don't we just build a portal and then our vendors can just upload directly, right? And then everybody thinks like that because it's just common logic, right? And so now you're in an industry where you've got lots of poorly designed legacy software intrinsic to a single company that's then being farmed out across large supply chains, very fragmented, segmented supply chains. And now if you flip it and you're on the other side of that equation, you're a sub-vendor company, you've got to learn a different piece of software for every different client you work with because you know they want to exert their influence over you to get you to do their basic administration. You've got a huge problem there, right? It's N multiplied by M. And everybody's got that horrible problem. And if you just put a single neutral piece of software in the middle, then it becomes N plus M. Can you just give listeners a kind of idea of, I didn't know this beforehand, before we chatted the first time, but a kind of an idea of the size of the jewellery market? Because you're saying this is companies that haven't thought about this really in the past before the last few years, is bringing the portal, bringing everything together. And this is a huge market, isn't it? Yeah, so the value of the market is 315 billion at the moment, growing 5% year on year. And that's a top line figure, which doesn't give you the full story, which is that actually that's jewelry and watches together, which can broadly be cut right down the middle. Watches maybe just slightly edges it. But then within jewelry, which is say 150 or 160 billion dollar market, you've then got huge segmentation within there. Just the difference between bridal and non-bridal, which means nothing to anyone who's not in jewelry, 
but you know that pretty much cuts the market in half right there. And then you've got diamonds and Antwerp and Israel on one side of that equation, and then you've got a completely different industry on the other side of that equation. So it's really quite a patchwork quilt of an industry, and that equates to a very deep moat and a very high wall, which, despite a rapidly digitizing landscape evolving with software around them in apparel and in fashion and in luxury. The jewelry industry is just this big analog castle that hasn't been penetrated yet. And I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by what I find on a day-to-day basis inside huge companies. So you obviously left the company you were in to set up Atelier. What year was this? And tell us your journey <laughs> to now, really. Yeah, sure. Okay, so it was the worst decision I ever made, which then led to the best possible outcome. I'd made director by the age of 27. I hit 30. This was sort of 2011, 2012, 13. And I was beginning to realize that I wasn't learning anymore. And, you know, I began to feel like I was sitting in a golden cage. I had my sports car. I paid for my place in North London on my own. None of my contemporaries had done that. Crouch End in London, an affluent part, relatively affluent part of North London. And, you know, I had a parking space in central London and I was turning left on planes. But I was basically taking around these needy buyers, chaperoning them around expensive restaurants and trade shows and doing the same thing, you know, year in, year out. And I, I just felt that I was stagnating and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that this wasn't enough or it wasn't right for me. And then I was invited to an industry leaders summit held in Austria, organized by Swarovski with the International Herald Tribune. And it's a very privileged position for me to be invited to that. We were quite a big client for Swarovski at the time. And I had that invitation. So we went over to Austria and it was amazing. Like three days all paid for Habsburg palaces, black tie dinners. It's just fabulous, right? And uh, McKinsey had kind of done it with the International Herald Tribune on Swarovski's payroll. And one of the speakers there was a young guy by the name of Chris Morton, who's the founder of List or one of the founders of List. And he delivered a 20-minute speech, which I found electrifying. And basically, it was like a big slap around the face that made me think, I've been asleep. I've been congratulating myself on what a great job I've been doing. And on a grid, I've got my place in front of all my contemporaries, like my, my apartment, I mean. And actually, here's somebody whose trajectory has just been completely incomparable to mine. And finding out that he was three years younger than me was even more sort of shocking at that time. And so that was the beginning of the moment when I knew something happened, needed to move quickly. So I basically went to the owners of that company and I said, okay, I've given you my 20s. What's on the table for my 30s? And it turned out there was equity on the table. I asked the question, there was significant equity. But I kind of looked at that company as it's a bit like the Titanic pulling out of Southampton Harbour, right? It's, you know, it's just seemed destined to fail to me. The company needed to evolve its business model. These traditional wholesalers couldn't have a place in a modern digital economy where transparency was just so much more than it had ever been before. And a company like that needs to completely evolve. You know, it needs to turn around 180. It needs to reinvent itself, right? And I didn't think that there was the appetite for that kind of change within the ownership of the company. So the chairman and his son who sat on the board with us, I just couldn't see it happening. There were too many hands on the steering wheel, right, to really pull a handbrake turn. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I decided that, I had to jump. And so I left. And I took a position as a managing director at a young startup called My Flash Trash at the time, which is run by a quite famous young lady in England called Amber Atherton, who is extremely intelligent. 
and very successful in the small startup at the time focused primarily on PR. That's where they were making money. But the vision at the time was to make that into this sort of fashion e-commerce, pure play for jewelry. And she needed somebody to build that. And I had the experience and the contacts and the know-how, and she had the connections and the startup and the funding. And so it seemed like a win-win. And I took a contract with equity and a vesting schedule. And uh, <laughs> Amber's a, a very dynamic person. She was also very, very young at the time, 22. And I got a lot of respect for her. But ultimately, I, I realized pretty quickly that maybe she wasn't quite ready to have somebody else drive her car. Yeah. So within six to eight weeks, maybe even less, actually, but I think it was maybe four to six weeks after starting, we sort of amicably agreed that this wasn't going to work out. I didn't leave her in the dumps, you know, I kept on for a couple of months with her and enabled her to sort of transition out of that. And we're amicable to this day. So that was, it was a bad situation, but we, we managed our way out of it. And so then I found myself having completely burned my bridges with this dream position where basically I was the sort of chosen one in this company that had come up from nowhere and like really earned my position at the top of it. I had the respect of every single person in the company from top to bottom, right? And then I found that I'd sort of thrown all that away, right? Somebody else had had my job and this startup that I joined completely didn't work out. But I'd had some pretty transformative experiences along the way, like pitching to Tom Teichman at Spark Ventures on my first day in that role and finding out about it the day before. <laughs> Never having drafted a deck in my life and not even enough time to really properly Google it, right? <laughs> That's Amber. But it was also a great eye-opener for me, right? Because An experience. Yeah, and the, the company that I'd left, I mean, it's just a series of these unusual things that happened at the same time. The company that I'd left had asked me to work a very long notice period, six months. I think they hoped that I might change my mind. And then they'd asked me to keep it completely confidential, not to tell any customers or any suppliers. And in the end, this dragged on and dragged on. I said, look, I'm going to my last Hong Kong trade show because we do two trade shows a year in jewelry in Hong Kong. And it's the pivotal trade show. And this one was in September. I said, look, I'm going to this thing. I'm finishing after a decade with you, more than a decade, 12 years with you. I'm finishing at the end of September. I've got to tell everybody that I'm leaving. Like, I have to do that for my own personal face apart from anything else. And so at that trade show, I told a couple of people that I was leaving and that it was imminent. And they pretty much refused to let me walk out of the booth without agreeing in some way, shape or form to continue talking to them or working with them, even if it seemed that what I was going to end up doing was nothing to do or not relevant for them. And I had a similar experience with a buying director at a big German retailer. She said, maybe you can just consult with me on my digital strategy. And I said, but I don't know anything about and, you know, that's why I'm leaving this whole old world of wholesale, because I need to learn about e-commerce. And, you know, I know it's the future and it's a missing string to my bow. This is why I'm taking this whole massive pay cut and all this risk. Uh, it's because I don't know. And she said, well, you know more than me. <laughs> and so that began as just a conversation. She invited me over to Dusseldorf a couple of weeks after Hong Kong. And I simultaneously, on the way back, on the airplane on the way back from that trade show, I remember thinking that these two different people on the supply side and the demand side had sort of asked to see if there was something I could do for them. And I thought, could I play them off against each other, right? And a solution came into sort of perspective. And then back in England, the next day I went to an e-commerce fulfillment thing and I met a chap that I'd pitched to previously for the company, Saatchi and Saatchi, years before. He's a founder of Monkey and Cloud Fulfillment and Kong365, a guy called Nav Ramaya. And... He said, I recognize you. I said, yeah, I recognize you. And um, he said, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I've just jumped from the position where I was and I've taken this startup. And at the time, I think he was potentially interested in investing in the startup. 
And so he asked to sort of remain in contact and see what we were doing. And then, so I'm just telling you all of that because you have to put that in the context of me like going into that new role and very quickly finding that it just wasn't the right fit for me. And so I was cautious about introducing that investor to something that I didn't have total confidence in and feeling like I'd made a massive mistake in terms of leaving my previous position and jumping into the wrong boat. Like I knew I had to jump out of the Titanic, but I jumped into a boat that was full of holes. Hopefully quite a lot of our listeners are in this situation where they, you know, they work in companies for a long time, they've got an idea or they're thinking to get out and something, but there's, there's no really that push. So it's great to hear you understanding that and having that drive to kind of move into something new. I meet people in that position. And the thing I say to them is, until you burn your bridges, I mean, really burn them, right? Till you've got no other option. There's no food on the table. Like, it can get pretty rough, right? And until you do that, you're not actually going to find your fifth gear, that extra something, right? I go to a really grimy boxing club in North London in Islington. It's called Islington Amateur Boxing Club. And there's paraphernalia all over the wall about boxing and a lot of Muhammad Ali quotes. And one of the ones I looked at, I remember every morning, 6 a.m., freezing cold, no heating in this place, right? And it's basically a shed in a park. And one of the things that Muhammad Ali quote, which said, champions are not made in gyms. Champions are made of something extra, something special that they find to go an extra mile, to find that extra something when nobody else can deliver it. And it was something that I remember living by. I used to walk past it every day and that I had to just, when I thought I'd exhausted everything, all of my resource, all of my capabilities, I had to find something else. It became a bit of a doctrine for me, but it's absolutely essential to me that if you're going to make a success of something, like you can't do it while you're doing a day job. It sounds nice, but it's just not possible. And so in a way, I had to make the biggest mistake in my professional life to then transition to what now feels like, you know, a future that I could never have imagined for myself. Well, let's talk about that future and Atelier Tech. So Atelier Technology is the world's first SaaS play in jewellery, so software as a service for jewellery companies. We are a B2B service that is aimed at really SME and above, so we're not really aimed at small independent stores or single persons trading. We're aimed at large retailers, brands, wholesalers, and export-grade manufacturers. The SaaS play is really a solution to a chicken and egg problem, which is that we want to be the enterprise network in jewellery. But how do you build a network? The inherent problem in a network is how do you get two sides to come at the same time to something that they have no reason to come to, right, until the other side is there. And so that's a chicken and egg problem. And by providing people with a compelling reason to use your software every day because it saves them having to put pictures in Excel or it saves them having to migrate data from PDF quotes into their internal system or it enables them to compare two vendors' quotes instantly without having to do any work, then you've given people a reason to log into your website. And if you can do that on both sides of the fence simultaneously, then you've got the beginnings of a network, which is what we see with Atelier today. I can give you the tip on this. We're just about to change the main call to action on our homepage banner to the Enterprise Jewelry Network. Up until now, it's been the ultimate product development tool product development and sourcing. We talk a lot about it like that because we're trying to appeal to the designers and the buyers in these jewelry companies, right? Traditional enterprise software was sold via an IT guy. And then the IT guy told the people in the company that they had to use it. If you look at HubSpot or Box or any of the great software plays, SaaS plays that have specifically mostly come out of California, they flip the model, right? So now you get the users to want your product. And then they basically tell the IT guy that they want this. And the IT guy is just now doing a DD exercise. 
and he's no longer the gatekeeper that he was before. It's user-driven adoption. Always lazy enough just to press install and that's it. Yeah, his, his neck's on the line, right? So he's got to make sure that it all comes together and that the software's fit for purpose and that the infosec is in place and that you know it's not going to collapse and all of those other things. But he's basically in DD. He's not a decision maker anymore at that point. So how big is the company now where you're at? Sure. I guess we need to sort of slightly reverse to where I was a moment ago insofar as that the original business model, which was that light bulb about how could I play off supply against demand at the same time on the plane. I was just thinking at that time as a consultant, I wasn't really thinking about starting a company. That kind of happened to me. I didn't plan to do that. And that original idea, which, you know, maybe it was doomed to failure, right? Because I was, I started with the wrong thing, which was how could I play them off against each other rather than how do I solve a compelling problem, a real issue, you know? And that first business model that we raised capital on in 2014, um, so first cash in, just enough to start a build. And then 2015, major seed investment of around 300K. That first business model never got off the ground, right? We were, you know, we were tinkering and tailoring with it at Cape Canaveral, and it just never got the injection of fuel that we were waiting for. And I'm not talking about capital. This was about, ultimately, it was about contingency issues within a contracted billion-dollar retailer but they just had this creaking IT division that couldn't get anything through because this is a big old retailer that's trying to modernize and, and compete with Amazon. That's who they consider their most direct competition. And you know, they were trying to centralize their accounting functions. They were trying to centralize, instead of running eight different e-commerce sites, they were trying to just run one. Yeah. Like, that was the scale of problem that they had. And we were inevitably, like we just got gazumped three times. We were signed off by CEOs. It was all in place. But we just got gazumped and gazumped. And it took a year between gazumps, right? So I remember one pivotal board meeting in Clerkenwell when, you know, I had raging fires all around me, right? You know, we were burning cash. We were running out of runway. The investors had like, you know, like steam coming out of their ears. And one of my co-founders had just exploded in the kitchen, couldn't take the heat. He'd made promises to his family and promises to us that were good as long as the build didn't last longer than 18 months. And when it did, suddenly... He had to choose his family over us. And so he abandoned us mid-build. I mean, it was absolutely like nightmare scenario. And I remember walking into that board meeting and basically saying, I know it's not ideal timing, but um, I've got this idea I want to talk to you about. Uh, that was the beginning of what became a 14-month pivot from that moment to the day when we switched off the e-commerce personalized website that we were running and, and had actually got customer acquisition down lower than the average profit per piece. So technically at that point, we should have just poured money on it. But then you're in a very competitive space, which is e-commerce and you're going up against Pandora and Tiffany and H. Samuel and it's pace per view. And you know it's, it's a very expensive game to be in that one. And so people talk about pivots as if they're these things that happen quickly, right? It doesn't happen like that. It's very, very slow and gradual. You're not convinced that you should even do it for a long time. I didn't get approval, by the way, from the board in that meeting. They were like, no fucking way. Like, <laughs> but I did it anyway. Because as the investors listening will know, a true entrepreneur, the guys that, in my opinion, what separates the people who are going to really return for an investor from the people who won't, is having the conviction, the courage of your convictions in that moment of extreme doubt and tension and everybody telling you it's the wrong thing and you can't do it but somehow having the courage to follow through on what you feel to be your gut instinct. And so I just put one engineer on it quietly. And we only had two engineers, so that was, <laughs> that was half of my resource. So it sounds like it was nothing, but it was massive at the time. And then we got a minimum viable product together, and I quietly 
you know, started getting traction on it. And I remember another pivotal moment when one of my board called me and they said, what are you doing in Italy? Because <laughs> he knew that with the pre-pivot model, like I shouldn't be in Italy. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'm just, you know, working on something. And anyway, cut a long story short, we took an MVP to market. We engaged major companies across different verticals of jewelry manufacturing and we broke our product, fixed it, broke it, fixed it, broke it, fixed it for about a year. And at the same time, it became clear that the gazumping cycle was not going to end and that we just couldn't wait any longer for this big contract to suddenly become cash generative and that investors had run out of patience. And so at that point, I put my house on the line to get more credit and more runway for the company. And so that's like when you're really burning, you're not just burning bridges, you're like, you're like digging holes under yourself at that point as a founder, right? And like to give you an idea of what I mean by it can get rough, like I remember cycling everywhere, even like from Crouch End to Putney in the rain because I didn't get public transport because the only way I could keep my independence and my ability to work out of the corner of my bedroom, and I used to have a lovely big glass office, right? Out of the corner of my bedroom was to reduce cost massively because that was my office, right? So I had to stay at that place, but the place had a significant mortgage on it, right? So effectively, I was like not buying me. I just reduced cost down to zero. And that was the modus operandi to survive at that time. Looking at it, we delivered huge amounts of software on a shoestring budget. To this day, one of my investors says he's never seen a team deliver as much software, even if a part of it we didn't take to market. He can't believe that what we've delivered on the money that went into the company. I'm presuming you didn't pay yourself at this point. No, I didn't pay myself for two years. And how many years was this since a sports car and... That was so I left the sports car in 2013. I sold that when I took the big pay cut that took me from six figures to, you know, 40K at the time when I took that MD position with equity. It was 40K and a little bit of equity. But I had a big mortgage because I bought solo and it was, you know, high loan to value at that time. And so I had a certain level of expense that I had to cover. And when I decided that I had to walk from that job because it was just not right, suddenly I'm like, okay, so I don't generate any cash. I can go back into some kind of a corporate career if you like but I'm a natural born maverick and my CV is one company for 12 years and I mean I knew I could go and work for like Links of London or Monica Vinader or you know I could go and walk into companies like that but I just I couldn't do that to myself that was why I left the other company right that I needed something more dynamic I needed to learn I needed to do something very different if I was going to stay in that industry and ultimately I got to the position with our board where we were convinced that this new model was right and it happened over a series of very difficult board meetings one after the other after the other where you know I really had a challenge on my hand every board meeting it was really I wasn't sleeping before you know I was having night sweats um it was really really tough for moments but eventually we had enough of a product that looked interesting enough and I could explain it in a simple way which managed to convince the board that this was a brighter future for Atelier. And today we are just breached 20 people. We're just going into a larger office space in London. Actually, we've now just got six people in London and we're 15 remote. We are on the threshold this month of becoming revenue generative. So those companies have agreed to pay and they've chosen invoice method as a payment method. And they're now been served an invoice and there's 30 days credit on it. And when the money hits the bank, I will open a bottle of champagne <laughs> because it's been a long journey. And obviously that's transformative for us in terms of value. As a company, even though we're pre-revenue, we've nailed enterprise clients already. So we're demonstrating elephant hunter DNA, right? Which if, if you're in SaaS and you're looking in B2B SaaS, what you want to see is 
can these guys build software and are they disruptive? But can they also put it into big enterprise? Typically, those two things might not go together, right? And um, I think that if you look at our homepage, you can see, you know, we make it public. We've got signed contracts with QVC and with F Heinz in the UK. They're both different scale of enterprise clients, but uh, we're helping them to evolve their operations for a digital world. We're helping them to become more dynamic, responsive retailers. And that's very important to them in a world where, you know, they're fighting for customers and they're not fighting anymore on the high street, right? The customer journey is starting on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, in China, it's starting on WeChat, you know, so, and then you've got a problem of signal to noise ratio. There's just so much noise, right? So how do you draw out signal? And if you're in retail, that means you've got to have a lot of newness. So Zara is a perfect example that I use that, you know, they've got lots of newness all the time and that drives their social media. And it also drives return visits from customers because they know that every time they go, there's something different. And it also drives purchase intent. Literally, I'm a Zara customer, right? If I see a pair of trousers, I really like them. It happened to me recently. I bought it in Hong Kong airport and now they won't let me take them back. I bought them with the the wrong size. But the reason I bought them was because I know that Zara, it's not like the same thing in every store and it's not there next time I go back to Hong Kong. So I'm a perfect example. I put my cash on the table because I knew that it might not be there again. If I was going to, you know, a more traditional retailer with a slower window rotation, I could have said, oh, it'll still be there when I go back in three months time. And I wouldn't have left my money in their tills. Yeah. And so the ability to drive window rotation, to put more new products in the window more frequently is important for all of the reasons above, but also just going back to basic economics, look at any product lifecycle, right? On a simple graph with profit on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, and it, it starts high and drops low. LCD TVs is a perfect example. When they came out, it was a luxury product, it was branded, you could buy a Bang & Olufsen, et cetera, high margins, few people had them. Now they're completely commoditized. They're basically like computer screens on a wall. And the only people that sell them are the base manufacturers like LG. And so in fashion, that's exactly the same thing that happens. Zara sit in the same front rows of the Milan fashion walks as you know, H&M. But Zara get it onto the shelves within two weeks. Yeah. And so they're eating up the front piece of that on every product that goes through their business. Right. That's why Inditex is one of the most valuable companies in the world. And they've re-optimized their supply chain to do that. They actually pay more per piece produced if you looked at it on a sort of real apples with apples basis compared to, say, H&M. But they make less mistakes and they have structured things in a way that drives much more powerful forces like customer retention, return visits, you know, average transaction per customer that walks in the store. And I just look at the P&L. So what about prospective entrepreneurs? What advice have you got and tips from your own entrepreneurial journey? Don't do it. Save your marriage. <laughs> you know, save your assets. Just you don't need it. It's an aberration. No. So I mean, a big warning because it's like you know, I see you know, I was in we were in Google Campus for a while, and the badge of a startup. When I see that stuff on Macs, you know, all the stickers all over MacBooks and stuff like that, I laugh because I'm like, that's not a badge of a startup. The badge of a startup is the chronic fatigue syndrome the badge of a startup is the gray hairs on the side of your head the badge of the startup is your you know shaky relationship with your better half those are the things that come with trying to build a startup unless you're really fortunate and you just hit on the right idea straight away and you don't have any problems on the way up and you're just one of a lucky minority one of a million or billion or something yeah yeah i mean you know you can even do everything right and if it's just the wrong timing the market's not ready for it 
you know, then you've done everything right. You haven't put a foot wrong and you're still going to be screwed. So entrepreneurs should really be cautious. But then the thing that I'd say is like, as an entrepreneur, don't suck either. Like Travis Kalanick, why didn't he appoint a proper CEO who built proper culture in the company before he had to like implode publicly and damage his own baby? Like, you know, like me, right? I've never scaled a billion dollar software company, but I have ambitions to. Am I the right person to be the CEO of that company? I'm not sure. You know, if there's somebody better for the company than as a shareholder, my interest is to put them in that position, right? And you need to think like that as a founder. First, you're a shareholder. Second, you're a founder. And if you think like that, then you'll be always be aligned with your board and you'll always be a reasonable person to talk to and you'll always be on the right side of the decision, in my opinion. If you start thinking that somehow you're distinct from your shareholders, like you're, you're in dangerous territory. So what's next for Atelier and where do you see the company going in the next five years or 10 yeah, sure. years, if you're still in it, if you're still CEO? Yeah, sure. Well, if I'm not CEO, I'm going to be product manager. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely in the company. I'm, you know, I get out of bed in the morning because I want to change this industry and I want to see the look in the eye of all the people who told me that it couldn't be done or that it was a waste of time. I want to see that moment in their eyes when they realized that they were wrong. And maybe it's arrogant and I'm hell-bent on it, but it's why I get out of bed. So I'm not going anywhere, right? And in fact, I would say that it's the depth of that drive that would lead me to appoint somebody else CEO because I'm so married to a positive outcome that even my own ego will be sacrificed in the pursuit of that positive outcome, right? That I'm secondary to that because, but you've got to be able to think of yourself, well, that's the previous point. You've got to be able to think of yourself as a shareholder first and as a founder second in that regard, I think. But the future for Atelier is we want to be a preclusive network. So we want to reach a critical mass of companies inside this old antiquated industry so that when the inevitable entrants scale the walls in a couple of years' time, because it's a big industry, they're going to come sooner or later, I want them to you know, climb the outside of the wall, look down and see us sitting around a pool with a cocktail in our hands with one finger in the air <laughs> saying, hey, you know, we built the network first. You can integrate with us, sure. We know that we're going to integrate with lots of PLMs and sourcing systems that cover multiple categories, but they're by definition, because they're fit for multiple categories, they're very unlikely going to be able to compete with us within jewelry. So we've got a much more fit for purpose product, which means that in theory, we should be the people to deliver that enterprise network in jewelry. And that's what we're trying to build. And we do it very transparently. I don't hide anything. We think that we've got a world-class product. We've got a unique team. At this particular moment in time, we've got fantastic traction and compound growth, and we're raising capital at the moment for the scale-up period of our company. We've got to the point where the board feels that we've done enough iteration, we've done enough testing, and that the data is there now to really fuel it. It's time to light the fire. And it's going to be a hell of a ride, and things are going to fall off mid-trajectory, but the defining moment for us will be when we pull out of the reach of gravity, escape velocity. Another Peter Thiel concept, actually, not one he talks about in zero to one. But what I mean by that is there was a certain moment in time when enough of my friends were on Facebook that even if I don't like Facebook, which I don't, you know, if I want to find a kid that I went to school with or a girlfriend I lost touch with, you know, there is no alternative. And traditional economic theory says that companies who earn sustained abnormal profits must attract competition and that competition is a good thing. You know, ultimately, you know, Facebook broke that model, right? And 
Google breaks that model. You know, platform economics and category economics are rewriting those rules and saying, actually, no, these companies have earned abnormal profits. And actually, the more abnormal profits they earn and the preclusive network effects that guard them from competition, the more positioned they are to grow that. Like, look at AI, right? Who are the people who are really investing in it, right? It's these big platforms that are now competing against each other. Google, Facebook, Alibaba, you know, they're, they're all big platform plays that have now just got huge economies of scale in terms of AI and intelligence and data and server infrastructure or what have you, that now leverage it to then compete against each other. It's a really interesting time, I think, for all of us. We're living through like a revolution that's faster than anything that's ever come before it. The impact will probably be deeper than anything that's ever come before it. And um, I bounce out of bed every day. No, I completely agree. So one last thing I'd like to talk about, this is away from tech and startups, is a passion of film that you created called Surviving Terminal Cancer. So I was wondering whether you were okay with just running through that and, yeah, and sure. let the listeners know, because I've watched it and I think it's an absolutely incredible you film. It. Okay, great. Thanks. It's not an easy film to watch. <laughs> it's really targeted at patients. It targets, it targets a lot of people. Like. Yeah, but it, it was made for... The reason I don't mind talking about it publicly is obviously I made a film about it and it was a family tragedy. My sister's husband was diagnosed at the age of 31 with glioblastoma multiforme, which is a terminal form of brain cancer, the most aggressive form. And when you're in that situation... He was an extremely sharp guy, like put through Oxford, aced his PhD without even thinking about it, was working for a big oil company, and really smart guy. But when you get those kind of tumors and multiple tumors in your head, your capacity to evaluate your situation is annihilated. And I recognized that. And I, I just felt that I needed to fight for him. And um, I come from an intellectual background, so I was used to picking up documents that I wasn't familiar with and reading and trying to learn and trying to sort of master something. And... I said about it and over a number of months traveled extensively, built contact networks, etc. But it was too late. I couldn't save him. And cut a long story short, I made the film because a couple of years after he died, I kept waking up having dreamt of other families being given the news that my family was given and the sort of depths that that plunges you to. And I felt that I had quite a lot of contacts and information that would have been extremely valuable to me were it to have been available to me in a succinct format that I could have shared with my family in the sort of critical window between diagnosis and the beginning of treatment, which can then become preclusive. And film seemed to be the best way to tell that story, that complex story quickly. And it also seemed to be one that would cross divides as well. It could cross linguistic divides. That film's been translated into seven languages voluntarily by people who saw it and realized that this could be translated and that you know it saves, you know, if you're Brazilian, right? And you don't speak good enough English to get into medical literature. Because <laughs> trust me, I, you know, I'm mother tongue English. Getting into medical literature is not easy. Getting your head around it. If you're not a native speaker, it's extremely difficult. And how much medical literature on an orphan disease like glioblastoma is there in Portuguese? Where's your resource? And so I thought film would be something which could cross those divides quickly. And that it could just remain there perennially. And in fact, it's been viewed over 100,000 times. And they're all, I can guarantee you, very few will be like yourself who has no reason to watch the film other than that maybe you've met me. And, but most of those views are patients who've been diagnosed and are scrambling on the internet because they can't believe that their loved one's about to die or that they've got six months to live and they, they think there must be something, which is what we were doing. I made the film because I thought that ultimately maybe we could also affect change. Right? Gandhi broke the British Empire because he walked through you know, a thousand Indian villages. 
and he informed people that change should come. And so again, film seemed to be a way that I could inject a lot of complex information into a vehicle that could just sit there and just inform people. And if every patient became as difficult and as unaccepting of the ironically called gold standard treatment that doesn't save your life, then maybe the medical establishment would have to eventually change. And just to close on that, what I mean is when you're given a terminal diagnosis or your family is, the immediate assumption is, well, we can go outside the box. And the reality that these people are confronted with is no, you can't. And the reasons for that are many, and you can watch the film if you're interested in what it is. It's a sort of paralysis that's fruit of economic factors, systemic factors, biological factors, a whole load of things that come together. But it's a terrifying realization that, you know, oh, we'll, we'll see how the treatment goes first and then we'll see what happens. But the reality is the treatment they're about to give you is probably going to reduce your white blood cell count to a point where you're then not going to be precluded from the entry parameters of most clinical trials. So it's a nightmare situation. I, c- I couldn't believe it when I found it and I wanted to fight it. It's the contrarian part of my nature that just couldn't accept it, basically. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.